You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup sat down with James K. Sabinius, the Gordon Donaldson Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Along with R. Nicholas Burns and Robert H. Nukin, he's the author of Kissinger, the Negotiator. What is negotiation? I think of negotiation in pretty broad terms. The most common view is what happens actually at the table, the back and forth tactical interplay. But negotiation, as Bob and Nick and I conceive of it, is really a series of moves at the table and away from the table that are put together, that are aligned and designed to uh, to elicit the desired yes. You've got something in mind, some kind of an agreement that you hope will be appealing enough to the other side or sides. And uh, and you to put that together, you orchestrate a process leading to um, leading to the target deal. So I think of it in quite broad terms. Right. So it's not just it's not just, you know, head to head at the table, so to speak, as you mentioned. It's 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 the design beforehand. It's it's communication. It's talks. It's it's a whole bunch of stuff around that. Very much. And I think of it as in, in many respects, it's part of it is the face to face. And that's critical. That's reading body language, that's framing arguments, meeting objections, anticipating and dealing with cross-cultural differences, um, getting a sense of personalities and history and organizational and political context, whole series of things that are very directly uh, involved with your counterpart or counterparts, since many of the negotiations I look at are, are multi-party. But that's, if you will, the immediate process or the call-it tactics. There's also a substantive piece of negotiation, and that's the art and science of designing agreements that unlock value. We think of financial value, but it can be strategic or political or you know, long-term, short-term. That it's the art and science of crafting agreements that unlock value and do so on a sustainable basis. So that's actually the substance. We think of that as deal design, and that's very much a part of negotiation. And Pulling back a little further, we think of the process of setting up the at the table process. So who should be involved? On what basis? Brought into the process in what sequence? Facing what consequences in the event of no deal? Under what expectations? So the setup, deal design, and tactics make up what we think of as the, the key elements or dimensions, if you will, of negotiation. How did you get involved in negotiation in the first place? As an academic and, and as a practitioner, I mean, when, when you were a kid, did you, did you just negotiate an amazing deal like, you know, no vegetables for three weeks or, or like a, an A on a test that you really should have gotten a C on and you thought, I have a talent? I think I, this came from an early age, but probably on a different basis. My family, as many families, had a number of divisions and people who didn't see eye to eye. And I found myself frequently in the process of trying to work something out that was good for everybody. And uh, my, my, my temperament tends to be a fairly calm one, and I tend to be able to conceptualize things as other people see them. And that led to a kind of an interest in why people get crosswise when, in fact, they could do better by cooperating and understanding each other better. And I didn't use the term negotiation, but I think those elements were present from an early age. It's also pretty analytical, very mathematical at a, at a young age. 
And if I zoom forward and I think of our own three kids when they were young, you might think of having a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge and a lot more money and being physically more powerful as obvious advantages in negotiation. Mm -hmm. Try your three-year-old. And uh, very frequently what you discover is, you know, the first thought is, uh, you know, is, is that your interest is actually not well served by those supposed assets. And you discover that your three-year-old is a superb coalitional player going to the other parent rather than you. And I saw this, and for whatever reason, it was much more fascinating than uh, than solo pursuits, either analytically, which I started off very mathematical, or uh, moving into other realms. You know, it, it reminds me of, um, of Tom Schelling, and I can't remember if it's Arms of Influence or Strategy of Conflict, but one of his books he basically says something like, everything I've learned about conflict and game theory, I can draw from raising kids. Um, and that international relations is not so different uh, from a lot of the conflicts and negotiation you have to do uh, at home. I think you very frequently find that um, although adults look serious and mature, many times they're much better understood in the way that you understand your kids. You know, if one of your kids wants the purple one and the other wants the orange one and they're getting in some kind of a kerfuffle, um, it really isn't probably about finding a compromise between those two colors, but they're probably hungry and uh, or tired. And that's going to be the resolution more than uh, what presents itself on the surface. And you'll see somebody really take offense and then... Uh, and then for, for reasons that um, that seem somehow different or incomprehensible to yeah. the other. So I, I think that Schelling, who, by the way, I was uh, in graduate school out at Stanford and taking the graduate economics sequence when uh, when I knew I had no formal interest in negotiation to that point. I read Schelling's Strategy of Conflict, and I thought, is that what economists do? And then I found myself uh, shifting courses entirely and ending up at Harvard and focusing on uh, on negotiation initially from a, a game theoretic point of view, and then broadly in economics and international relations and, and business and so forth. Are there common mistakes that people make when negotiating? I would say there are many. Um, frequently people focus on their own or the other side's position, which is, is, is the stance one takes in bargaining. And in fact, pushing behind those positions, you'll often find interests that are, could be reconciled. But the negotiation takes place at a kind of a surface level. And there are many, many examples of this. I know Henry Kissinger talks about the early part of the disengagement accords between the Egyptians and the Israelis over the Sinai. And the positions of where you literally draw the line in the sand were incompatible. And at least for a while, if you think behind the positions that, pe that the two sides were taking and you say, what were their interests? Obviously, the Israelis had a keen interest in security. The, uh, the, the Israelis did. The, the Egyptians were focused, after all the centuries of colonial domination and otherwise, sovereignty was especially important. Then for a while, a demilitarized zone under the Egyptian flag managed to reconcile that, getting behind the positions of draw the line here, draw the line there, and finding something. You see this time and time again. That's a common mistake. More, I think more importantly, and for the purposes of complex negotiations, whereas where I've really made my uh, uh, kind of my academic interest. I find that people see negotiations far too narrowly. 
As we were speaking before, they often focus far too much on the tactical and interpersonal, as important as that is, but not exclusively important. They don't think of a range of much broader possible agreements, and they don't think of the range of possible other parties, other interests, no-deal options, coalitional moves, mm -hmm. thinking broadly and creatively about how to structure negotiations is something that I think uh, I see happen all the time. There are many others. We talked about when you ask the question, why negotiate at all? People do get caught up in a process without asking sometimes what their uh, uh, what the purpose in negotiation is at all. Because sometimes you're better off trying to figure out a better deal with somebody when the same energy might be far better uh, far better utilized in improving your no deal options and uh, and and doing something entirely outside of the negotiation. So getting too fixated on a narrow piece of the process is uh, is a is captures a lot of sins, if you will, in negotiation. Now, a lot of these themes, you, of course, as you mentioned in your book, uh, right, which we got here again, it's Kissinger, the negotiator, lessons from deal-making at the highest level. And, um, and so I want to, I want to get into, I want to get into this a little bit. Why, why write this book? What, what, what what's the purpose? The book really comes from a couple of programs that uh, several of us at Harvard have been involved with. There's a program that I've chaired at the program on negotiation based at the law school, but Harvard-wide with MIT and the Fletcher School at Tufts and so forth on so-called great negotiators. And that's a, that's a sequence of women and men from around the world whom we've honored, some traditional diplomats, others remarkable uh, negotiators in the arts or otherwise. We honored in 2012 uh, former Secretary of State Jim Baker and really for his key work in uh, the unification of Germany within NATO, the Gulf War coalition to eject Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, the Madrid conference of the Arabs and Israelis. And, um, and when we did that, we got together and joined forces with Nick Burns and his Future of Diplomacy project. That was so successful and perhaps a bit surprisingly given that, uh, given that Baker was a tough Texas conservative and talked pretty bluntly, but people learned a lot. And Nick had the idea of our investigating and asking all former U.S. secretaries of state about their most challenging negotiations and what we might learn. And so adapting the process that we developed with uh, great negotiators over a number of years, we have subsequently interviewed um, Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, uh, Jim Baker, as I mentioned, Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Condi Rice, Hillary Clinton. We hope and plan to interview uh, Secretary Kerry soon. And uh, long interviews, mostly videotaped, to really probe their most challenging negotiations and what we can learn. Our sessions with Henry Kissinger, after much preparation, I think I read about 6,000 pages of his uh, memoirs and actual memoirs and writings, and actually found myself looking for more. The level of insight about negotiation was striking. And people I knew who were especially savvy about negotiation, when I would point to this or that aspect. And when we had Secretary Kissinger in a Harvard classroom for the first time in 45 years, um, the questions were often sharp and his answers were deeply thought provoking. 
It was emotional for him as a kind of homecoming. He'd been to Harvard a few times since, but this was the first time in a, in a classroom. Uh, he was in Drew Faust, Harvard's then president, uh, a rock star in the eyes of the, the students. And he left us thinking a lot about aspects of negotiation that perhaps we hadn't seen as clearly before. That led me, and in fact, there was a, when we'd interviewed uh, former Secretary of State and many other cabinet posts, uh, George Schultz, he'd written a short book called The Ten Commandments of Negotiation. And I asked Secretary Kissinger, if you were to write your Ten Commandments of Negotiation, what would be some of the key elements? And he looked back and said, I'm not really sure I could use George Schultz's commandments, and I'm not sure he could use my approach. I know you've had James Baker here, and I do know that you should never get between Jim Baker and a concrete negotiating objective. You'll get run over. But my approach, it's too idiosyncratic, too context and personality dependent. I don't think it can be reduced to a series of things. And you thinking that about as a challenge. It, I did. Yeah. I thought it struck me that there was a way to see a kind of underlying approach. And I assumed somebody, given the millions of words and so many books that have been written by and about Henry Kissinger, I assumed somebody had uh, crystallized this. Yeah. Oddly, it turned out that he hadn't. And so I wrote a long essay, um, as if I had were Kissinger's ghostwriter, about a 10,000-word essay, and sent it to him. We spoke on the phone, and he said, let's talk about this. And that actually led me, along with my colleagues Nick and Bob, to be much more systematic about it and uh, and try to see what we could learn from this remarkable Secretary of State. Now, was it hard to write a book about such a controversial figure? I mean, can you really separate the man and his foreign policy from his negotiating process? I mean, there's so many things about uh, it's so debated about whether or not he had a good or bad impact. Um, how were you able to, to do that? As someone who was in college during the Vietnam War, and for whom I think it's fair to say at that time Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger were not in my category of folk heroes, nor those of my friends, it was implausible on the face of it. But I was sufficiently intrigued by what I seemed to have learned that it was worth trying to figure out if the controversies made the project um, uh, unworthy or undoable. And what we found were several things. First of all, remarkable successes that were almost universally acknowledged. So the opening to China after 20 years of non-communication and mutual hostility with the United States. At the height of the Cold War, with tens of thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other, a calming of tensions with detente and uh, the first nuclear arms control agreement. The war in the Middle East that broke out in 1973 and disengagement agreements among Egypt, Israel, and Syria that really have lasted to this day. And of course, getting the U.S. out of, um, of Vietnam through the Paris peace talks, which collapsed after a few years. Those are remarkable achievements in and of themselves, but also in terms of the broader order that they created. That seemed worth understanding. Yeah. But at the same time, if I said words like Chile or East Timor or Bangladesh or support for authoritarians and dictators or human rights, if I started listing authors like Christopher Hitchens or William Shawcross or I were to look at, uh, at, at Cy Hirsch mm -hmm. 
or a series of others, most recently uh, Greg Grandin, people would come out very harshly and negatively. On the flip side, you'd see Neil Ferguson, you'd see Robert Kaplan, you'd see Joe Jaffe, you'd see Alastair Horn saying this guy really was, was impressive. And it almost came to a head at the, in the Democratic primary debates between Hillary Clinton and, uh, and Bernie Sanders when Secretary Clinton said, I would turn to Henry Kissinger for advice, and Bernie Sanders said, no way. And that led to a debate among a dozen different columnists on both sides in the Times and elsewhere about, is Kissinger a saint or a sinner? Mm -hmm. And what I think stepping back from that controversy, which is real and you know more than 40 years after he held office, still pretty raw, um, what, I, what, what I think struck me, looking Every few years, there's a survey of international relations academics, uh, about 1,600 of them, and they rate secretaries of state in terms of effectiveness. Overwhelmingly, across the political spectrum, whether you're an institutionalist or a realist or whether you're you know, liberal or conservative, Kissinger overwhelmingly was rated as the most effective. And I think that was the question. What could we learn about his effectiveness while in no sense trying to, um, you know, trying to, trying to overlook some of the real problems that uh, both influenced his negotiations? And, and, and those I hope we brought out as well as the, uh, some of the most useful aspects. But it was really a book not so much to evaluate the past as to learn from it. You were also critical in the book. You you aren't, yes. I mean, it's not just, well, let's look at his negotiating process and he was so good at it and he's amazing. There were a lot of moments where you, you criticize his basic assumptions. One of the things you mentioned in the book, one of the takeaways is is good assumptions that that we that that good negotiators have to have good assumptions, and there's a huge section, of course, about the Vietnam War and the the assumption of the domino theory, uh, and other sorts of uh, mistaken assumptions that you do sort of take a critical look. Um, so, what, what were what were things that you you felt um, you could learn from Kissinger that there were mistakes that he made, uh, and what what were some of the things that you did you you think that he did he did particularly well? So the mistakes that Kissinger made, um, I would say, largely fell in the category that you described. So if you look at the Vietnam negotiations, as a technical matter, and we might talk about this, I was surprised at the subtlety and, frankly, virtuosity of what, to me, at, before I looked at the process, looked like the U.S. was in a very strong position. And in fact, I, the case could be made that the U.S. was actually in quite a weak position. It was committed to withdraw, and the North Vietnamese knew it. A weak negotiating so, position. A weak negotiating right. position, exactly. Right. And um, and there was a, a, a lot of, of pretty remarkable moves in that. And we could discuss it. It's, it's, it's complicated. But what underlay the Vietnam talks and many, many critiques at the time were the assumptions that Vietnam was strategically critical, that American credibility broadly was at stake, that Vietnamization could work, and that if we reached a deal, it could be enforced. And at the time and subsequently, all those assumptions have been challenged. And I think going in and seeing things too much from a classical East-West anti-communist perspective probably misled the process. 
I think there's a far less well-known negotiation that intrigued us, in part just because it was um, so little known to, to any of us and so interesting, which was uh, persuading the then Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, to, uh, to admit black majority rule within a couple of years. Um, that seemed unlikely on the face of it. And, um, and we, I think, learned a lot from that example, which had far less of the controversy attached to many of the other mm-hmm. negotiations that, uh, that, we, that we studied. Mm-hmm. And yet there, his focus really began, or I should say, he became focused on Southern Africa primarily at least in the first instance, as a possible front in the Cold War. And had he thought about some of the other issues earlier, it might well have happened more effectively, even though we think we can learn a great deal from what on the surface is a uh, uh, an almost incomprehensibly complex and unlikely negotiation. Here you have the two, you know, South Africa, an apartheid state. You've got Rhodesia, a white minority uh, ruled country with, you know, a few hundred thousand whites and several million blacks. And you have, um, and you have Kissinger orchestrating a complex coalitional process among relatively radical African states, other organization of African unity, um, mem- state, uh, state members, um, the British, the Americans, and most unlikely of all, getting the South Africans to pressure the Rhodesians to abandon white minority South rule. South Africa, which was... South Africa, which had... The, was an apartheid state. Was an apartheid state. Yeah. And it seemed so unlikely that one would be able to do that, that yeah. we had to ask from a deal perspective, how did that happen? So Kissinger got Ian Smith to say, uh, he's to support uh, black majority rule in Rhodesia. Correct. That was the, that was the major success so what, what was I'm sorry, what was the what were the uh, had he had he come to that earlier? Had he started the process earlier? This, what were the mistakes? This in that? process, I, and I I jumped into it a little bit without mm-hmm. without much context. And he became interested in this as a possible negotiation fairly late in the game. Richard Nixon had resigned. He was Gerald Ford's Secretary of State. There had been Cuban and Soviet incursions into Angola. Mozambique was looking as if it might go radical, if you will, and Kissinger got interested in that uh, in that conflict, mm-hmm. and then that led to the uh, the Rhodesian negotiations. In effect, a large scale bargain um, that if Kissinger were able to persuade Smith to abandon white minority rule, mm-hmm. the states in the region would agree to um, to keep foreign troops out of the region. That happened so late in the game, and in fact, Ford lost the election and Kissinger became a lame duck before the process was complete. Arguably, seeing this earlier and focusing more on the intrinsic democratic issues that were at stake Mm -hmm. rather than the Cold War issues might have brought that to better fruition Mm -hmm. earlier. So I think that would be another example of of um, assumptions about yeah. the world that, that might be different. And, and some of the things that you said, uh, well, actually, before we get to that, the, the, the greatest takeaways um, that Kissinger did employ effectively, you called the Rhodesia, uh, which is now present-day Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. uh, you called that negotiation um, the forgotten negotiation, the forgotten Kissinger negotiation, uh, that this was a major success. It was, a major, it was seen as a huge success at the time. Why don't people care about it? 
I think several reasons. First, Kissinger has remained a controversial figure. And this is a part of the world that um, doesn't receive an awful lot of attention. But beyond the kid controversy surrounding Kissinger, the fact is that white, white majority, white minority rule didn't leave Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, until a couple of years later, when at Lancaster House, the British essentially midwifed the deal that Kissinger had, yeah, that the Kissinger had essentially put in place. And while a triumph, if you will, for democratic principle in that the majority of Zimbabweans could now vote for um, their leadership, they did, and they voted for Robert Mugabe, who arguably has been a disaster economically and democratically. So the final outcome, the, the outcome for years afterwards, was miserable. And so it might have been a negotiating success, but it played out in a way that uh, hasn't made anybody happy. Yeah, and, but that's, and that's part of the, that's, that's, that's the rub for me, right? Because there's the outcome in the negotiation. And sometimes they're linked, you know, maybe it was, was it a mistaken assumption to get, to intervene or, you know, not necessarily militarily, but in the first place, or even with China, for instance, you know, this idea that, uh, in fact, I think there are a bunch of headlines over the last year that said that we lost the gamble, that the gamble of even opening up China in the 70s, uh, we lost that gamble and it's led to heightened tensions today economically and vulnerabilities for the United States. So, you kind of wonder how, to what extent do we judge a long-term outcome uh, in in judging an, in, in judging the success of a negotiation? How, how far is our timeline for judging uh, for judging at linking the outcome with the negotiation itself? That's a fair and difficult question. I think you know Kissinger remarked that the solution to one problem is simply an invitation to a more difficult problem. And if you look at the state of the world in the late 60s and early 70s, with hostilities and the threat of nuclear war apparently growing, and you look at a series of moves that opened up the relationship between China and the US, given how important they were uh, to the world and arguably to each other, whether acknowledged or not, And the fact that that put the U.S. at the sort of apex of a triangular relationship with the Soviets and overall added stability to the world system and increased U.S. influence, certainly for a while, that was a big plus. I think the question you ask becomes much more, much sharper in other settings, for example, around around, uh, policy toward China. So there was a bet that I think the, the, the outcome of which is still uncertain about whether admitting China to the World Trade Organization was a good thing or a bad thing. The bet was that that would lead to Chinese acceptance of a series of international norms that the US and others held, uh, held, held dear. And it's not working out that way at all. In so many people say, was that a good idea to expand the trading system to include the Chinese in the way that they have and so forth? That seems to be a more debatable question than should the U.S. have recognized the Chinese in the first place or operated in isolation from them in a more, in a less stable world? I think though that, that, um, one has to distinguish between a good decision and a good outcome. 
And a good decision is a decision that one makes on defensible criteria as best you understand at the time that's consistent with that and is a what most people would think of as a good bet. You can also have a good outcome that was a terrible decision. So if you bet your life savings on the lottery and won, that was a terrible decision, but with a very good outcome. If you vaccinated your child with a widely regarded as safe vaccine against some terrible disease and suffered a hitherto unknown side effect, well, the vaccination was probably a good decision, but the outcome was terrible. And I think we do run into that conundrum here. It's an intriguing area to go into, but frankly, I think negotiation itself, there's a lot more to learn about it. But what you underscore, I think, is really key. I wanted to turn come back to this idea of what can we draw from Kissinger that, that he did, that he executed really well uh, over the course of his time as a national security advisor and, and, and secretary of state. You know, I've studied and written case studies. After all, I am a professor at the Harvard Business School, so case studies are, are, my, are kind of my stock in trade other than books and so forth. But I've studied and worked with lots and lots of negotiators um, really remarkable women and men from in all, all domains. Studying Kissinger crystallized something that in retrospect I've seen among the very best negotiators. You call him a breed apart. Yes. That's something you wrote in the book. Yes. Wait, 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 yeah, what, what, why? Well, in part, it's consistent with the judgment of professionals who look at him carefully. And I mentioned the, the survey of international relations scholars. Partly, it's our own assessment of some utterly remarkable negotiations and an approach. But what I had not seen or crystallized until reflecting on many of Kissinger's negotiations, looking across a bunch of them rather than in depth at each one in particular, is that Kissinger consistently would zoom out, if you will, to a larger sort of analytic and strategic view of the situation. And that consisted of much more than the immediate action at the table. And he had a sort of a long-term view, a sense of um, of kind of what was going on, let's call it strategically, and we can get into what that actually meant in practice, because it can be an empty term. He zoomed out, and then he would zoom in, and he would zoom into the person, and he would zoom back out and in, almost effortlessly, bringing the, uh, the sort of macro and micro together and uh, in service of the, the interests that he was seeking to, uh, to advance through negotiation. And what I've seen are some utterly remarkable sort of strategic negotiators, big picture thinkers who, um, who are very good at that level, but interpersonally either don't give it much credence, aren't very good at it, or for whatever reason, focus more on the analytical and the strategic and the large picture. And then there's some people who are fantastic interpersonally, but really don't have a very keen strategic or a long-term sense. And I noticed in Kissinger's negotiation, this continually zooming out to the strategy, zooming into the person, and being very effective at both levels and at bringing them into alignment. And it wasn't a two-step process. We might think you zoom out to the strategy and step two, you zoom in to the person where you implement or execute the strategy you have in mind. But it was much more iterative. And then when I look back to other 
remarkable negotiators. I think of a Dick Holbrook, or I think of a Jim Baker, or a Charlene Barshevsky, or, or others. I think that characteristic was present, but not nearly so obvious. And in fact, one can train oneself and one's students consciously that if you tend toward one or another perspective, can you focus on both yeah. and go back and forth? That was a real lesson for me. The fact the elements of what it means to zoom out and the elements of what it means to zoom in, I think are, are really interesting. And several chapters of the book are devoted to each of those as well as bringing them together. What can normal people take from this book? Why should regular, you know, most of the negotiations we enter aren't, you know, trying to orchestrate peace between, uh, you know, Israel and the, and the broader Middle East. It's, it's, it's things like, you know, I uh, prefer uh, washing the dishes uh, as opposed to taking out the trash. Uh, you know, these are more mundane, they're so mundane. These are very, very normal day-to-day negotiations that people, that most people experience. So what, what kind of lessons could, could that person draw from, from your book or, or from Kissinger? Well, in the, in the book, we took real pains to step out of the diplomatic narrative or the discussion of Kissinger per se to try to draw broader negotiation insights. Because the real purpose of this book was prescriptive. That is, what is a kind of analysis of a situation that's likely to generate an approach, strategy and tactics that get you more what you want? And, you know, zooming out in a mundane, everyday negotiation might be saying, what's really important here? Is it the relationship or do I want to make sure that I get my way in going to movie A as opposed to movie B? Mm. Really understand what your interests are in the situation and how, um, you know, maybe you need to bring somebody else into the process because uh, you're just either oil and water or somebody else brings something in that'll make the three of you uh, work well. You want to think a little bit more broadly than just launch in and say, here's my position and now what's your position? And then you battle and see if you end up uh, someplace in the middle. Um, the second thing, and so in a mini sense, you might say that that's kind of a zooming out piece, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, is there a strategic perspective? Have you really thought about how a deal versus no deal looks to the different sides and so forth? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a broader piece. But then in everyday negotiations, I think the zooming in that we saw Kissinger do, which frankly surprised me because I thought, and I think most people have a view of Kissinger that's more geopolitical. Mm. And there's a kind of a metaphor of a, of a grandmaster on a geopolitical chessboard. And yet, one thing that, um, that was surprising to me, and I found actually delightful to, to write, was to see how Kissinger both read his counterparts, how much he strove, to empathize with um, his counterparts, and by empathy, I don't mean um, I don't mean to sympathize. I mean to kind of inhabit their point of view and convey to them that you kind of get who they are. Yeah. That's enormously persuasive. He wasn't known well, for being empathetic. Well, yeah. not. I, I think the first word one would say with Henry Kissinger is hardly empathetic. Right. And yet, in the sense that I define the term. Um, my colleague Bob Benukin has spent a lot of time teasing out what many people think of as, as kind of polar opposites in negotiation, which would be empathetic and assertive. And most people would say Kissinger was on the assertive end of the scale. But actually, really effective negotiators are both empathetic, not necessarily in agreeing, but conveying, really understanding the other side, conveying to the other side that you get who they are and what they're about, 
as well as asserting the interests that they have. And I think reading the other side, establishing rapport, figuring out how to make proposals, it's quite interesting that uh, most people think of negotiation as kind of glorified haggling in day-to-day pieces. And actually Kissinger, um, while he early on in his career made a lot of haggling-like comments and many of his negotiations had that element here or there, but he actually was much more focused on how do we reconcile interests? Because if people don't see something as in their interest, even if they say yes to it, they're not going to stick with it. And that's true of people as it is of nations. And I think when you look at this in those terms, it is, uh, it's relevant. I don't think most people would turn to this book and Henry Kissinger for advice on buying a car or negotiating their salary, though there are elements that are quite relevant. But I think this is more a book for people who face complex negotiations. And that doesn't have to mean global world scale negotiations. Mm-hmm. It simply means they're typically a number of different parties. It could be a financial transaction. It could be a, you know, an alliance or a merger. It could be a scientific collaboration among several different countries. It could be, um, really, uh, a, a, a complex sale, if you will, in, you know, in business. Um, but if there are elements of complexity, more than one party, internal parties who have to work something out in tandem with the external parties, if there are a number of different issues, different and complex um, uh, alternatives to to a negotiated agreement, when those elements are present, there's no better guide than Kissinger. And and I don't think it's at all necessary to see see the, uh, to imagine that this stuff's only applicable at the high level. How important is a really, uh, really good smile? In negotiations. I mean, you know, charm, the original kind of negotiating tactic, you know, send send Joe Biden in somewhere and he'll basically get you what you want. Bill Richardson would embody that as well. The um, I've seen really effective negotiators who smile and ones who frown. I think in general, a smile works much better, even if Donald Trump says that he wants to be Winston Churchill in negotiation <laughs> and have that uh, that downcast mouth. But um, I, you know, body language can make a difference because people do make unconscious on the spot decisions, friend or foe, easy or hard. And that can shape expectations, which in turn can affect the negotiations. So I wouldn't um, I wouldn't discount the uh, the effect of that. There's a there's a tendency to overdo stuff like that. President Trump has some upcoming negotiations that he has committed himself to uh, EU uh, trade negotiations, Chinese uh, negotiations with the Chinese. Um, There's also his, uh, supposedly he will uh, negotiate a better Iran deal. uh, And there's also the North Korean negotiations. Do you, um, knowing what you know about Trump's negotiating tactics, do you have any advice, or is there anything from the book that you might prescribe? You know, I would probably, the, the thing that puzzles me at the moment, having studied Donald Trump fairly carefully as a private sector negotiator, and then of course, as all of us have seen his negotiations, either with the Congress on healthcare or other topics, and now with um, the North Koreans and, and, uh, and other countries. The question that keeps coming in my mind that's inspired by the Kissinger book is, what's the strategy behind this? In other words, 
where is it that we really want to go? Um, it is, I think the advice would be look beyond the specific transaction and ask, what's the shape of the outcome that you'd like to see? There are pieces that we can see, but not the broader picture, or at least it's not obvious to me. And so I think to articulate a broader strategy would be one strong lesson from, uh, from observing, uh, observing Kissinger. I think the second piece would be to really know the subject matter that was involved or have people on your staff who really know it well. I think a lack of domain knowledge can be a, a great hindrance, as, uh, as I think Kissinger's experience suggests. And, um, and then he, President Trump really does focus in on individual people and he highly personalizes diplomacy. And that can be a great strength. But absent that, if you will, that effective zooming in without zooming out um, leaves one puzzled as to, uh, to what direction to go. I'm just struck. One follow-up. I was struck by the by the by the um, the analysis of his private sector uh, negotiations. I, I you see a lot more um, in the news about his about his tactics uh, that he's doing publicly, as you mentioned, in in, in with, uh, with global leaders. But I was wondering if you might just elaborate a little bit on on what you've learned or of your examination of his private sector uh, negotiating ta- negotiating tactics. What was that style like? Um, what were what were the pitfalls or the successes? So early on, the negotiation he did that resulted in the um, Grand Hyatt Hotel in uh, at Grand Central in New York, and then Trump Tower, were really pulled off with a lot of skill, many parties in those uh, municipal negotiations, financial and political and otherwise, he had advantages. His father had a lot of connections. They had a a fair degree of family money, but those were not easy to pull off at all. He was indefatigable in uh, in pursuing them and pulled each of them off, not without uh, bruising some of the people in the process. But I'd have to say as a technical matter, it was impressive. As he continued as a developer, the record became much spottier, and he was quite prone to get into um, to get into spats. So the deal that would have made him the premier developer in New York, uh, he would have he wanted to build something called Television City on a something like seventy-seven acre plot on the um, uh, on the west side of New York. Um, he needed quite a lot from the from the city, from Ed Koch, then the mayor, and fairly quickly got in a highly personal spat with the mayor all over the papers, calling each other names and so forth, and couldn't get what he wanted. And in fact, it was difficult to uh, to to the money necessary to hang on to that became uh, too much, and his investment had to be bailed out by Hong Kong investors, whom he subsequently sued after they sold the prosperity for a billion dollars. Relationships were, I think it's fair to say, very secondary to transactions, and not much sense that many people have of loyalty. Though it was far more a focus of could he be successful in the public eye? And where I think everyone would agree he's been very successful, unlike the financial, unlike the, um, the, uh, the real estate deal making in the, in the later years, I think the, the reality TV and the brand building 
was remarkable. But that's very different than, say, all the bankruptcies in, uh, you know, in Atlantic City or pretty sober calculations of had Trump taken the early money he had and invested it in a real estate investment trust um, at much lower leverage than he ultimately assumed, he would arguably be worth in the 20 billion plus category as opposed to at most 4 billion. So I think on a financial basis, a lot of people would say it was not a very successful uh, successful strategy. But in terms of his prominence and then his capacity on TV and building brands, I think one has to one has to admire his um, his dexterity in that regard. And then one can one can um, import those elements into um, into the the public sector deal making. And, uh, and you begin to get, you know, different sets of conclusions. That's very, very interesting. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really great. And uh, the book, again, is called uh, Kissinger, The Negotiator, Lessons from Dealmaking at the Highest Level, published earlier this year. Thank you again. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 